Welcome to Machine Learning. Well, it's another week, and uh, I've had a lot to think about this week as I've been hurrying to get through my data course on uh, um, Python programming, and especially decorators. And it, uh, it's interesting because you can, you can uh, use the decoration decorator keyword and um, um, also uh, use your metadata to understand what the function is doing so you can instead of calling the the getting the when you when you do the um, look at your doc for the metadata instead of getting the wrapper for the decorator you want to get the function that you're decorating's um, metadata and the way you do that is you use the wraps you import that wraps and uh, use that um, uh, for your your uh, uh, function that you're you're wanting to get its metadata on so it changes the metadata of the function that you're you're looking at, um, and so what you can think of is basically creating a decorator factory, and the decorator factory uh, will return back to you a decorator. And since it's a factory, you can pass it a parameter, and so through the decorator itself, you can pass a, a parameter into uh, the function that you're wanting uh, wanting to to decorate, and uh, and so that function can receive uh, arg and double indirect kw args, and so it's a little it's a little uh, advanced, but it's really nice because once you have those decorators then you can use those decorators to do uh, different things. Um, for example, if I want to wrap uh, a function, let's say that uh, is running slow or, or halting, I can, I can, uh, I can uh, raise some different errors if certain thresholds aren't met. For example, uh, you know, I could have a, a list of functions that I run through and check the diagnostic on it, make sure that they perform within a certain time period and so I could decorate those functions and then I could pass in as parameters um, the value for the decorator and then that would pass that would pass on to the function and then I could uh, I could you know use my time dot time and uh, and get the time in milliseconds and then find out how many milliseconds elapsed and then, and then report that in seconds back to the interface. Another thing that uh, could be done is is that you could use decorators to do a lot of your validation, uh, your diagnostics on your your uh, test sets, and things like that that are constantly being used, and you're having to set up the APIs, and so decorators could uh, um, greatly influence um, 
the way you do your programming and reduce it down to single lines of code. And I, I do like that idea because a lot of the busy work that you do has to do with setting up parameters and, uh, and you know, those are before you run the classifier and do your predictions and after. Not so much after, but more before. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're setting up pipelines, but even with pipelines, you're having to add additional uh, functionality that you could do sequentially. And so you get into this habit of cutting and pasting. And uh, uh, that can be dangerous because you can have duplication. It takes a lot more time to cut and paste. So if you spend the time to build your decorator and your nested functions and your modules, you're really better off. And then you can have these nice set of um, decorators and functions that you can use in your code and uh, and um, for that reason, uh, that the decorator pattern becomes really powerful. Um, I had thought about the decorator pattern in C sharp, and the decorator pattern in C sharp uh, it it gives you additional functionality to the to the base class that you're decorating, and um, and. The same is true in Python. You know, you're, you're having one um, one one class wrap another, and you're providing uh, an interface between the parent, the wrapper class, and the and the uh, base class that you're you're working with. So you can either call that base class just by uh, calling func, or you can you can set parameters to your wrapper and uh, pass that on to the to the function and um, you know I, it was a the wrapper or the decorator pattern is one of the more popular patterns in uh, object-oriented programming because it doesn't it adds this additional functionality without uh, changing or modifying anything in the base cl class that you're, you're uh, wrapping. And so there might be cases where you need to add additional functionality and you could just do that through a, a decorator class. And, um, and so, you know, thinking about C sharp and thinking about decorator patterns, uh, I, I, I can see some real advantages to investing time in the, into the decorators and into providing uh, additional functionality through the decorator pattern. And, um, and so that one is, uh, is nice, you know, it doesn't, uh, you get the additional functionality without having to build in an inheritance tree and uh, you, know, you don't have to deal with polymorphism. You can, you can kind of create some polymorphism by stacking decorators. And that's what I was thinking about is that, you know, if you want some additional functionality, you just stack one decorator on top of another. Um, and so you're wrapping functionality within functionality. And, and you can also call another decorator 
uh, function within the uh, within the wrapper itself function and uh, the reason why I think you can do that is uh, because of closures is that the system looks up all the all the variables the interpreter looks up all the variables that are required in that local function and, in, and including other functions that may have been decorated and so that's a that was part of the training is to explain that the closures are really a key part of uh, the decorator pattern and to utilize them so that was uh, insightful and so you could have a decorator parameter on a function that's being called within a decorator. Now there's some, some crossover here that could be a little dangerous and, and they do give you the capability to analyze your closure and values. And I, I know that there was a uh, problem on a stack overflow uh, that I was looking at. And at first when I was looking at it, it had a, uh, it had a map, basically a di uh, dictionary and they were using the dictionary to do the equivalent of a switch. So it had the, uh, you had a get value, and so you use the get uh, on the variable, and it would then return to you the value. So there's a key value pair match. And so you do the get on the key, and it returns back to you the value. Well, they had had a class, and they had two variables defined, but the variables were not defined in the class. And then they had a, to a method. And in C sharp, if you had two instances of a class and then you call a method, and then the variables in that method were accessing the variables of the class, when you compared the two classes, they would have different values for those variables. Well, with closures in Python, it doesn't quite work that way. If you have a variable described externally as a global variable, and then you reference that variable in a class, it creates a closure. Um, and so that variable then can change inside the class, and that's what was happening. He didn't understand that, so I had to explain closures. And... Um, and that explained why the the he was getting the inconsistency in the data, and uh, so that that's one of the things that you're you're going to want to study is how closures work with local, non-local variables and local variables, and uh, parameter passing. So I would say this is one of the more insightful courses I took about Python programming. And it's also got me thinking a lot about the C-sharp and some of the structures that I did in C-sharp. Um, and uh, really kind of desiring to move the C-sharp syntax to more of a Python-like syntax where I can do more with less, you know. Um, I've been trying to figure out the pipe pattern that is prevalent in um, PowerShell. I, I really like that where you can take something and you can pipe it into another thing and kind of transform it uh, based on on a pipe. And it, and it just kind of treats the uh, 
treats to what you're piping to it as a list, as a variant list. And that's good, exactly what Python does is that everything is an object. So your functions are an object, your lists are an object, dictionaries are an object, variable, and so forth. And then you can give specific types, like you can you can send it as a string type, a float type, etc. So that, you know those things are not lost, but um, it's very flexible. Doesn't require lots of programming, and um, and for that reason, I like it because it lets me get a lot of work done quick. And uh, I think decorators and is probably another big money saver in terms of once you invest into it and uh, and start thinking about it and, and applying it wherever things can be repeated where code can be repeated a lot you know build decorators that, that's one of the suggestions is you know what why when when should I use a decorator well when you're doing things that are repeated you know and and uh, even in the unit testing they have something like a decorator with X units where you can uh, you can give it a decorator name and then you can pass it a list of parameters and based on on the, uh, the decorator type and the parameters you're passing then then that will feed in that will be fed into as input parameters into your class and so that that's what was really great and uh, you know that works great for unit testing but you could also do something like that with decorators in your programming. So it doesn't always have to be a unit test where you're applying decorators. It can be uh, it can be actually in your code. So that's something to consider also. Um, you know, when you look at performance, again, going back to performance and uh, the measurement of performance. One thing that uh, is interesting is like number of projects that a person works on. So if, if they're working on a lot of projects, a lot of times, and they've been with the company for quite a while, that's a good indicator that that's a, a fairly good performing uh, employee. And you know the difference between a uh, employee that stays and goes a lot of times is very small in my mind. Uh, as I you know I've looked at some of the data. And that, that is that their performance um, is reflected in their raises and bonuses, but also in, as reflected in the number of projects that they're working on. And, uh, but it, in order to make a really accurate prediction, you have to have good feedback and you have to ask, um, you have to ask the employee, are they satisfied with their job? You know, what things could change? What type, do they have the tools to get the work done? That was a big um, issue with the millennials is that they said that uh, in order to have good job satisfaction, they want they wanted to have the tools to get their work done, and they wanted to have a uh, a work environment that was sensitive to their needs and uh, was a fun place to work and uh, the, you know that was sociable. And there were uh, things like, sorry about that brief interruption. So yeah, the um, surveys are are uh, important to finding out if the employee is satisfied and uh, if he has the tools to get the work done. 
that's one of the critical issues that I read about the millennials is that they want to make sure that they have the tools to get the work done. You know, they have uh, access to um, Python. They they can get access to different uh, libraries, and uh, they can utilize some of the tools that are available uh, to getting their work done. I, I, I enjoy Data Camp because I can get uh, pretty good insight into how the technology works, and I'm going to be starting some of their projects to see how their projects run. I think they have 23 different projects. I'm going to try those out and see uh, if I like them. I've been I've been creating my own projects as I go and just pulling data off the web and, and uh, analyzing it. And that's been helpful. And uh, I feel like my Python coding is getting better. I remember looking at Python several years ago and it was thinking how massive this programming language was, but really wondering if Python was the way to invest my time or if I should move to uh, Java or C-sharp. And um, after thinking about what the, the professional programming world was wanting, I, I moved to C-sharp, got some C-sharp uh, work, and uh, enjoyed C-sharp. You know, there's a lot of things that C-sharp could do. But now as I got into Python, I can see why Python uh, became the fastest growing language, you know. I really liked Visual Basic before Python. I thought there was a lot of uh, value in getting work done. Uh, and I could run in just simple Visual Basic. But now I can see with uh, Python and Python Jupyter Nodes and Lab um, that I could, uh, I could get just the same amount of work done and... Uh, and it's in this nice script that I can I can execute, and you know I can combine with PowerShell. I can get a lot of my automated uh, data extractions uh, completed. But I've been thinking a lot about uh, using Python as an interface, you know, because it has um, a nice programming language. It's a nice programming language, and there's um, Django looks like it could uh, do a lot of the things that I, I want to do in an interface that would provide the basic functionality that I need. And I could then use uh, Django to show my Python work. And so if it uh, is like Jupyter Notes uh, and, uh, and I can combine the two worlds together and use that to, to uh, show my data, then I think that uh, on a web server, that might be something that would be interesting to pursue. And plus I can, I, I can program to the database, so I, that's not a problem. I understand data frames, I understand pandas, um, I understand NumPy, and so because of that understanding that I, I, can, I can also, you know, learn how to use Django and see if that's a, an upcoming user interface that will provide a, a nice professional looking interface 
without having to deal with JavaScript. JavaScript is not my favorite language. It is an easy language to learn, but it's a, it's such a huge language. You combine that with CSS. Um, it's just, you can do a lot, but it's just too complex. I would rather have things in the form of components and a programmable-like interface language where I can control things from uh, pro programmatically and through changing attributes and doing uh, structured programming like I'm familiar with on the back end. I like the back end style of programming to become common in the front end and that's why I like Flutter. It was uh, very programmatic. Uh, I could control the whole interface through programming you could uh, incorporate styles into it through uh, different widgets that allow you to do that. But I, I like that, that approach. I thought it was a useful approach. I like Visual Basic. I like C++. I like C Sharp. And, the, you know, the XML approach to the user interface, I did not like. It was, it was pretty vanilla envelope. I could get things done. I could get my work done, but it wasn't impressive to the users. And that, at the end of the day, they really drove you back towards Angular and uh, and towards Flutter, and to get those great looking interfaces. And I preferred Flutter over Angular just because of the widget component approach. However, there were things that uh, on the web portion that it couldn't, Flutter couldn't do that Angular could, and with particularly in reuse of JavaScript libraries. And uh, that was huge, and I, and I actually had to switch and use an Angular project to get some work done. So, you know, it, it, there's a lot of libraries, there's a lot of technology out there. You use, I guess what I'm saying is you use what makes sense for the conditions that uh, you're faced with. And so if you have a particular problem, you look for components that other people have built and see if it would solve your problem. If not, you look for a commercial product that might solve your problem. And if not, then you uh, you build your own components. And everyone's in a hurry. We're in, I'm in a hurry all day now. I analyze data all day. You know, it's amazing to to think that I I have enough understanding at this point that I can sit there and think about data all day, and uh, you know, not have time where I'm just like in dead time. But I do take my breaks. I do walk around. Uh, talk to people, hear what they're faced up against with data, um, data analysis, think, walk around, think about my problems, talk to my wife, ask her questions, tell her what I'm working on, get ideas. Sometimes it, when you're just uh, kind of like doing things that way, you get uh, some insights that help you solve things that you're working on. And uh, oftentimes you don't really know whether or not what you're working on is the right answer. Um, 
but if it starts, you know, if you're making certain predictions in your mind and those predictions are happening, you're getting good confidence that what you're doing is probably right. Uh, there's going to be cases where maybe you forget certain codes or you're not, you know, you don't have the complete picture or maybe some of the functionality is, uh, aggregation is not, uh, aggregating to the right level of detail. But overall, if you're making predictions and those predictions are, are happening, you're getting pretty confident that what you're doing is right. And I think that's a large, largely the way you have to think about machine learning and AI is because you are in an undiscovered territory. You know, you're pulling together features. You don't know what features are going to be a major impact. You look, look, read about what other people have done. So it's kind of like academic in that sense. You want to read what other people have, have done in this field, be aware of their work, uh, try to understand their work. And at the same time, uh, you're exposed to a lot of uh, a lot of challenges that you're working on. And so it's kind of a combination of, of having time to read and study, uh, increase your knowledge base, increase your experience working with different technologies, gain an understanding of what those technologies can do. And then when you see opportunities to implement that, uh, taking the risk to do that and knowing what the predictable results will be. And so that's kind of the interesting world of, of uh, data science that I've been going up against. And originally, you know, I was just uh, only interested in database, but I could see, I could see that uh, there were lots of questions that people were always asking in the data that uh, I felt like, well, if I had invested time in building the infrastructure, that I could easily uh, answer those questions. And so by analyzing and putting more time in the infrastructure and in the uh, making sure that the pathways were available, then I was able to set up that foundational piece from the data. And, you know, I could collect the data into one area. And uh, that's what I did. It I collected, I collected uh, from different data sources data into one area and then analyzed that data and now what I can do with that foundation is start to extract that into meaningful aggregates or you can break it into different categories and then using uh, Power BI for visualization and Python Seaboard for visualization. I actually found that, you know, Python Seaboard has some really cool uh, charts and graphing tools that help you under, understand densities uh, or distributions. You got KD distribution, KD plot, which does a lot with it has a, it, it kind of shows you a topographical density of your, like a scatter plot, but it shows you your kind of a density uh, topography, along with histograms on the side that show you frequency. And, um, and you can, you can do a lot with the K density. You can also plot that with a scatter plot, so you can see your point distributions with the K density. Uh, you can use violin plots. You can use box plots. I use box plots kind of to analyze uh, uh, different 
numerical ranges by different uh, other numerical uh, frequencies. So different categorical values, like for example, if I wanted to analyze, uh, let's say I'm analyzing salary against years in service, and I'm looking at that based on uh, different categories, like maybe number of of uh, of uh, pay raises, or I, I'm looking at it in terms of number of projects. Then I can see how the different groups are are distributed by the box plot, and those things are really helpful for understanding your data in terms of the density and the distribution of those densities. Um, you could do count plot. That was also kind of neat to, you know, maybe against an occupation, you want to see how uh, your distribution is being distributed. So you can use a count plot. Well, you can always just use straight Python against a frame and just use uh, value counts. And that'll just give you a rough idea. And then you can plot those value counts. But uh, so there's some tools at your hand that uh, you can use for visualization that are, are helpful and they give you that insight into what's going on with your data. And, you, and, and then what I'm learning to do with my Python is when I discover a pattern or, or information about that uh, from the graph that I write out what I'm observing. I write out the observation itself because that observation later can be tested through uh, analytical prediction. I can put it in an uh, ordinary least squares algorithm. I can put it into uh, a linear regressor. Uh, and I could even get it into a Taylor series and then make see if I can accurately predict based on features uh, results. Or I can predict uh, trend and so like for example with some of these predictors when we were analyzing education and salary that uh, that I could uh, see that there was a correlation to individuals that were earning more with their salary uh, because of their education and, and also it's true uh, with their Certification. So you can look at uh, what uh, individuals are certified, how many certifications occur, what type of certifications. And you need to have some sort of weighting system for evaluating what certifications are more important than others. So you could say, well, you know, this certification, if you have in welding would, or in electrical, would be very important. Um, and so if, if that individual has that certification, did that correlate? to higher pay you know um, so it's not necessarily correlation is correlation is not causation but you know it may have uh, demonstrated that the person is taking an initiative to learn more uh, because they have these higher skill sets or they're more of a knowledge-based worker they may be in higher demand and so that higher demand may drive uh, higher wages so these are interesting thoughts um, that I've been thinking about and trying to analyze and understand. And uh, Python's a good tool for doing that and also 
uh, Power BI is a good tool for presenting that to business. And, you know, with predictive analytics, you have to be able to uh, show the gain, like the cumulative gain that will result from a particular business strategy. So, for example, with customer churn, you know, how much is it going to cost them to save a customer? At the same time, how much is that customer going to earn over his lifetime? So you can predict uh, what uh, the lifetime earnings of that customer is based on his historical spending patterns. And then you can weigh that against the cost to saving that customer. And then you can also identify customers that are at risk to be lost. And then, it, and then providing offers, because everything is based on the offer, providing offers that might be incentives for them to stay. So the better your offers, the better the treatment you, you provide your customer, the higher your probability of having that customer return and the and the better your profit margins become uh, not necessarily profit margins but uh, the better your gross earnings become as a result of those sales revenue increases so that it's important customer analytics is very important employee analytics is important and those are some of the things that i've i've started to feel like uh, uh, are necessary to understand how your business works. And so the machine learning just by itself, you're going to have a lot of algorithms. And some of you out there are, are machine learning experts right now. And you're, and you're like going, well, I know all these cool algorithms. Where do I apply them? Well, you need to learn how business works. You need to learn how the uh, financials work and take the, take the courses on on how to build a profit loss uh, 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 chart, how to build, um, how, understand how the cost of goods are assembled, and then understand how the business makes its money, and get into the areas where the action occurs. And then when you're understanding where the action occurs, then you're gonna see different ways to apply the tool. Don't take the tool and apply it to the data and then make the business work that way. Go the other way around. Understand how the business works and then look for the tools that help you uh, improve the efficiency of the tool. So you want, you know, you can identify trend, you can identify category, uh, you can identify what's weird in the data. And then lastly, you can devise ways based on observation and predictions to make take actions, and so that's kind of the area where real value is occurs with the AI and machine learning is when uh, you have enough skill and enough data and enough uh, infrastructure built to take actions in a way that will be impactful to the company. Because your the company, unless it's studying the data. And even if it's studying the data, it may not be understanding the data as in terms of significance and what is really happening because they are, they're only looking at cer certain key indicators to tell them if things are going good or things are going bad. 
and they're listening to a lot of the human emotion uh, as it relates and without actually looking at the data to see what's going on. And so because they're not looking at the data, there can be uh, assumptions made that are not necessarily true. And uh, I, I kind of like that, that show numbers because it's uh, constantly show, illustrating how uh, they start off and they have a general idea of what's going on. And then there's different uh, algorithms that could be used that uh, would give them probability of something happening or something occurring or some be, the criminal being in a certain place. And uh, that predictability is very interesting because probability, as we've said before, is a frequency of occurrence. And so because there's a certain frequency of occurrence, you can state that there's a probability that something might happen. And uh, based on that probability, that's what uh, is, uh, you know, you look at uh, true, fa- uh, true, true faults, and and uh, um, you look at the ROC curve, you look at the area under the curve, those give you an idea of, in your fusion matrix, of how many true positives you have and how many true negatives you have and your false positives and your false negatives. And when it comes down to that, that gives you an idea of your system in terms of probability, how generalized it is. And so hopefully, not always, but hopefully when you're uh, receiving inputs and the system is not changing too dynamically, that the that, that classifier is uh, accurate. Then, you know, what happens when uh, that classifier becomes disaccurate, then you have to start doing your forensics and figure out, you know, is there some outliers in the data, you can use your analytic tools to find for outliers that may be skewing uh, or creating noise in the network that's disrupting the network. So you, you want to try to figure out how to remove that noise or or maybe have specialized networks for dealing just for that particular outlier cases and the noise that's being produced there. Anyway, there's a lot of things to be thinking about in machine learning and AI and uh, in an exciting time where uh, data is the new gold. So, uh, you know, enjoy happy coding, as they say, happy coding. And uh, enjoy, the, uh, enjoy the world of analytics and mathematics because analytics is mathematics and mathematics is analytics.